The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Uh, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're, you're with us this morning. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, go ahead and grab a hold of those and open them up to Matthew chapter 14. Uh, Matthew 14 is where we're going to spend our time today. Uh, if you didn't bring a Bible, that's all right. We've got these hardback black ones underneath every chair. You can open those up to page 820. If you're online with us, hey, we love you. We're glad you're with us. Go ahead and click that little Bible tab and go to Matthew 14. Uh, but that's where we're going to be this morning. Uh, last week, uh, if you were with us, I had the, the, the famous feeding of the 5,000 miracle that, that we preached on out of Matthew 14. And today we have, if there's a possibility to have even a more famous moment in Jesus' life, uh, we have the uber famous Jesus walking on water story today. So I get the maybe two of the most famous stories in the gospel as my last two sermons before I go on sabbatical. And uh, I don't really want to belabor the point today. Uh, I really want to get right into this because this text has a lot of layers to it. Uh, And so I I think the main idea of this passage that we're going to see is the interconnectedness of knowing God and trusting God how these two ideas, knowing God and trusting God, how they work together. So just from the outset today, I don't normally do this, but to to let all of my type A people just take a deep breath and breathe, um, I'm gonna give you my main point right off the bat. You don't have to worry or wait. Here we go. You can write this down. As we know God more, we trust God more. That's the, I think that's the main point of this text. Knowing God and trusting God, the interconnectedness, as we know God more, we trust God more. Those are the things that should grow in us. As we know more about God, we should grow in our trust of him. And in our text today, we're gonna really see three, uh, what I'm calling know God moments and uh, three trust God moments. So there's three and three on this one. And I'm gonna say it repeatedly on repeat. So if you don't get it down the first time, I promise I'll say it's like 12 times today. The most important thing that God is doing in your life is teaching you to trust him. The most important thing that God is doing in your life is teaching you to trust him. And I'm gonna say that on repeat, so don't worry, I'll say it again, but let's get after it. Matthew chapter 14, we're gonna pick it up in verse 22. So follow along in your text. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat And go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. All right, so this is the setup, okay? And uh, the text says that immediately Jesus made his disciples go, okay? And and so the disciples had just participated in the miracle where close to, we said, almost 20,000 people were fed using five loaves and two fish. But it says immediately Jesus makes the disciples get back into the boat. He doesn't give them any time to celebrate. He's like, all right, get back in the boat. And you, you guys traveled over here this morning. Now I'm sending you back onto the Sea of Galilee. And it says that Jesus dismisses the crowds. So that's really just setting us up. It's the same day as the feeding of the 5,000 and and they've been fed, and now he sends his disciples off. Now, verses 23 and 24 give us some details. After he had dismissed the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening had come, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. So, um, 
So Jesus heads up on the mountain. He sends everybody away. He heads up on the mountain to be with his father in prayer. Uh, and scholars pretty much agree that this is the same day, okay? This is the same day as the feeding of the 5,000. And the, the Sea of Galilee at this, this section where they're at is only about five miles across, okay? Five miles across. And John's account of this miracle said that the disciples had made it about halfway across by the fourth watch of the night. Now, this is a scene reminiscent of one that we've already seen. Okay, back in Matthew chapter eight, we found another story with the disciples on a boat and a storm comes to them on the Sea of Galilee. And, and Jesus was with them in Matthew chapter eight. Uh, this storm showed up. They, the, the disciples, remember this, we preached this last year. The disciples run to Jesus asking him to save them, uh, but they find him, he's asleep, right? With the cushion on the boat. They wake him up. I said, don't ever wake up the son of God. That's my, that's my you know, don't let him nap. Okay, just let him nap. Uh, but they wake him up. He rebukes the storm. The disciples marvel at Jesus and they ask, the, they say these things. What sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? So that's Matthew chapter eight. Now we're a few chapters, six chapters later. The difference here is they're on the boat, but this time Jesus isn't with them. Last time Jesus was on the boat with them. This time they are on the boat by themselves. And this time Jesus sent them into the storm. And, and I don't know what, that does to your theology. But I think this is our first trust God moment in the text. You see, sometimes God will send you into storms. Sometimes he'll send you intentionally into choppy and rough seas. He won't just react to the storms that you happen to come upon. No, sometimes he will actually send you into them. Listen, they obeyed Jesus' direct command for them to get in the boat and start rowing, and they ended up in a storm as a result. Their obedience led to the storm. Does that settle a little weird with anybody? Because I think sometimes we think if we obey, we won't hit those storms, right? but that's not the case in this story. And you need to understand this. We need to understand this as Christ followers so that when storms hit, you won't just automatically assume that you're outside of God's will. You won't instinctively think I did something wrong to get me here because that may not be the case. See, certain storms are a part of God's will for you. Certain storms are part of what God is doing in your life because he's not just doing something for you in that storm. He's actually trying to do something in you with that storm. I mean, you've got to know this about storms. See, I'll say it again. The most important thing that God is doing in your life is teaching you to trust him. And so faith will usually lead you through difficulty, not around it. You may not do anything wrong and it still might play out that you find yourself on the waves. So that's what I see here, okay? The beginning of the story is Jesus sends his disciples into a storm. Now, how are they gonna respond? Well, the text continues, verse 25. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. Now, that feels like just, information for information's sake, but we need to stop for a second. It, it says it, that Jesus comes to them in the fourth 
watch of the night. Now, the night in the Roman culture at this time is measured from sun, uh, sundown to sunrise, and it covers uh, four watches. There are four, it's broken into four watches. Uh, and, and, and so this is the last period of the night, which is probably anywhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So it's three to six in the morning, somewhere around there. Now, if we assume that they had left uh, immediately after feeding the 5,000, that means they probably got on the sea at dusk, right around dinner, just after dinner time, okay? Um, And that means that they were in the boat rowing from anywhere between six and nine hours at this point. Can I remember how far this is? It was five miles across, and they only made it halfway over the course of six, maybe seven hours of rowing. But you know what this means, don't you? It means Jesus didn't come immediately. He he let them fight the storm for most of the night while he was apparently absent. And listen, I think it's a second trust God moment in this text. Y'all, sometimes God will let you fight the storm without any perception of where he is. Sometimes he'll let you fight through the darkness, through the waves, through the winds, and it might even feel like he's not around. I mean, consider the fact of the story here. I mean, it's like three in the morning. Okay, let's just assume it's early. So let's just say it's three in the morning and the disciples are still battling this five-mile boat trip. I mean, I don't know how long it takes to sail five miles. I know how, how long it takes to run five miles, and I'll tell you, it ain't six hours. I don't care how out of shape you are. You can crawl five miles in six hours, okay? Uh, But plus, remember, some of these disciples are professional fishermen. They grew up, their, their whole vocation until they started following Jesus was rowing boats on the Sea of Galilee. So, so their whole lives are spent on this and they've gotten halfway across the, 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 the sea in these, the storm must have been a tumult. It must have been unbelievably impressive. It must have been almost like a supernatural storm that's been thrown at them. And now they've been at it all night. They, they must be at the end of their strength, the end of their resolve. I mean, they, they had rowed all, the, if you remember, this is the same day. So that morning they had rowed over to Bethsaida Then they spent the whole day with Jesus as he's healing people. Then they fed 5,000 people. They did that miracle. Then they get back in the boat and they spend six more hours fighting the seas. They must be exhausted. But this yet again is this trust God thing. The most important thing God is doing in their lives is teaching them to trust him. So sometimes he's gonna just let you fight. Sometimes he's gonna let you slog it out. Now, I'd like to pause on Matthew because I think Mark in his gospel adds something that's really interesting and really important. uh, And it's a detail. I'll put this up on the screen, but this is the parallel account from uh, Mark's gospel. This is what Mark says. Uh, And Jesus saw, this is when he's walking out on the water, Jesus saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea He meant to pass them by. Now, there is some debate that I read about this week as to what that little phrase, he meant to pass them by, means. But I think it's really important. That little phrase, Matthew leaves it out, Mark points it out. 
Uh, and I have a hunch on this from a couple of the te- commentaries that I read uh, that this is actually a throwback moment for Jesus. You see, in Exodus chapter 33, there's a very interesting passage where uh, Moses and God are talking, okay? Uh, Moses is, is, is talking with God. He is interceding on behalf of the Israelites because uh, while he was up on the mountain getting the law, they had formed an idol, a golden calf, a little baby cow, some golden veal, right? Uh, and they had, they had started worshiping this idol and God hears about it, freaks out. Like God's allowed to freak out when you start worshiping baby calves, okay? Uh, and he freaks out. He causes a plague to come across God's people. And uh, then Moses intercedes on behalf of the people. And essentially at this point in this conversation in Exodus 33, he's trying to convince God not to just abandon his people. He's saying, please don't leave them. Come with them into the promised land. Put your glory on display. Uh, Essentially, Moses is bargaining with God at this point. Now, here's the text that I want us to point to. I'll put this up again. Exodus 33, 17 through 23. And the Lord said to Moses, this is after Moses is begging for God's people's lives. This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. So Moses said, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, that's Yahweh. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And then the Lord said, behold, There's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So Exodus 33 I think Mark is trying to give us a clue that Jesus is doing this throwback to to Yahweh and Moses here. I don't think it's too far of a stretch. Remember, as we we know God more, we trust God more. And and I think this is our first know God moment in this text. We've seen a couple of trust God moments, but this, this I think is a know God moment. See, I think, I think Jesus is about to reveal he's God to these guys. He meant to pass them by. Like, I think Jesus is about to show him his backside, which I don't even know what that means. But I think it'd be incredible. Like, I don't know if it's a Mount of Transfiguration moment that he was planning or what, but he meant to pass them by. He's teaching them to know God more by revealing that he's God to them. As we know God more, we'll trust God more. But he never actually passes them. He never actually passes them by, and we'll see why. Back to Matthew's gospel, look at verse 26. In 26, it says, But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. Cried out in fear. Verse 27, let's keep going. 27. uh, But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. So I think, that, I think this is the disciples interrupting Jesus' walk on the sea, right? Like, I think they interrupt. He's meaning to pass them by. He might even be willing to show them and reveal to them his glory, and they see him, and they freak out. And listen, you would too, 
Okay, this isn't like, let's, let's be honest. The, these ancient people aren't that different from us. People don't walk on water. It's not like a normal occurrence on the Sea of Galilee in you know, 2,000 years ago that people are just taking jaunts across the lake. That's not how it works, okay? This is a rare and terrifying moment for them. So they freak out, they see him, they think it's a ghost and they're terrified. And then Jesus speaks to them, words that we hear all through the scripture. He says, take heart, it is I, don't be afraid. Don't fear is the most commanded thing in the Bible. Do not fear. Now, those words are important, but the words that are sandwiched in between there, the take heart and the do not fear, there's these three words, it is I. In the, Hebrew, or I mean, in the Greek, it's actually two words. And this is the fulcrum point of the story. This is the middle section of the story. This is the climax of the story. And the Greek words that are translated there, it is I, is actually a little bit better translated, um, I it is. Doesn't read as well in our English, but, but it's, it's, it's the, the Greek words, ego, I me, ego, I me. And it's, like I said, I it is, or it's sometimes translated, I am. Ego, I me. Now, let's throw back to Exodus again. Because there's this other Moses moment in Exodus chapter three, where we find the account of Moses speaking to God, who's talking to him through a burning bush at this point. This is before Exodus 33. And here's what's said. I'll, I'll put it up here. Moses then said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, well, what's his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent you. This is the, the name that God gives Moses to tell the people in Egypt in slavery who he is. Now, in the Septuagint, this is good stuff, good Bible stuff here. Okay, so follow along with me. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Uh, so the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. Before Jesus comes on the scene, it was translated into Greek. And actually, most of our quotes in the New Testament and Paul's writings and others quote the Septuagint, the version of Greek of the Old Testament, not the Hebrew Old Testament. So that's the Septuagint. Well, in the Septuagint, I looked it up this week, in Exodus chapter three, it reads, God said to Moses, Ego, I'm me. I am who I am. I am ego, I'm me. The exact same words. It is I. Now, isn't this just incredible? I think this is incredible, okay? This is the second no God moment in this passage. Like in response to seeing his disciples fear and wanting to teach them to trust God, he was going to reveal it to them, but they interrupt him. So now instead he says he's God. He was going to reveal that he's God and now he says it. Ego, I me. Take heart. It is I. I am. Don't be afraid. Again, as we know God more, we trust God more, and Jesus has just told his disciples, hey, you, you wanna know why you can trust me? You wanna know why you can trust me? Because I'm God. I am, it is I. So, so this is a big deal. This is a big deal passage. Now, we're, we're about to turn the page and actually get into the Peter part of the story, the Peter walking on water part of the story, which is everyone's favorite part of this story. 
Uh, but, and, and yes, it's awesome, okay? Even, as much as sometimes I down on Peter, this is, a great, this is a great passage, okay? But I really wanted to spend a little bit of time on the first half of the story because I think it's equally as important. God's doing something in this moment. Jesus is doing something and he's teaching his disciples to both know him and trust him. Now, here we go. Verse 28, everybody's favorite. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you out on the water. Now, Peter's answer to Jesus, uh, little don't be afraid, little play on words, the it is I thing, uh, he, he answers with a play on words, okay? So if Jesus is saying, I it is, or I am, then Peter says, Lord, it would literally read like this, Lord, if you it is, then command me to come out. Or if you am, then call me command me to come to you. Now, uh, again, people like to rag on Peter um, in this story. And gosh, if I don't like to take the pot shots at Peter, but, um, but I just don't think this is a story to rag on Peter on. Okay, Peter is the only disciple who seems to pick up what Jesus is actually doing here. All the other guys are hanging in the boat. You can see Peter's trust growing here. Right? Maybe it's the fact that Peter has just learned something from that experience of feeding the 5,000. Like maybe he's learned something there or maybe he's picking up on what Jesus is doing. But at the very least, he knows, hey, if Jesus had the power to enable him to take part in the 5,000 miracle, and if he is saying that he is I am, the great I am, if he is saying that he's Yahweh, then command me to walk on the water because you could do that too. Now, to my mind, this takes some serious trust. I mean, a serious level of trust. I'm not sure I have that much trust. Even knowing the miracles, I'm not sure I would feel very confident to get my leg out that boat. Now, I heard a story this week uh, uh, that you may have heard of at some point. His, uh, a guy named Charles Blondin. Have you heard of Charles Blondin? Charles Blondin uh, was a guy who in 1869 is the first person to ever cross the Niagara Falls on a tightrope. I have a picture uh, that I found of this dude. That's Niagara Falls, and that's Charles on a tightrope crossing the thing. Now, uh, apparently on that bridge back there, apparently the first time he did it, like 25,000 spectators showed up on that bridge to watch him do this feat, which just taught me that people do love a horrific, horrific event, right? They're not watching him to see him cross it. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is why we have Twitter, right? To just watch people explode. Like that's what this is. This is ancient Twitter, okay? But, but Blondin successfully crossed the thing. He successfully crossed on the tightrope and the crowd loved it. The crowd loved it. And so he wanted to one-up himself. Blondin wanted to one-up himself. So uh, uh, the story goes that the next time he was going to cross it, he let everybody know that he was going to bring something with him. And what he did was he brought a mini kitchen with him out onto the tightrope, and then he cooked an omelet and ate it, and then walked the rest of the way across, like balancing with like this table thing. I found a picture of that. It was it was way too grainy, so I I didn't put it up there. But but and people just lost their mind on this guy. They were their their mind was blown. But he didn't want to be done there. So the next time he gets up there, he gets a wheelbarrow filled with 350 pounds of concrete. And he wheels the wheelbarrow across the thing. And people are just astonished at this guy. What sort of man is this? Had to be in their thing. So he proves, he proves that he can walk it. 
okay? He proves that he can even cook and eat on this thing. Like he even put a wheelbarrow on it, pushing it across. And so the story goes that he got to the crowd after doing that wheelbarrow trick, dumped out the concrete and said, hey, does, how, many of you, how many of you think I can get 200 pounds back across? And, and everybody's like, of course you can. Of course you, you've just done 350. Why couldn't you do 200? And so then he says to this, this frothy crowd, he says, hey, anybody out here weigh 200 pounds? Oh, right. And nobody was willing to do it. Nobody was willing to get in the wheelbarrow. Crickets from that crowd. See, listen, all this knowing God stuff is not so that we can just go, wow, that's incredible. Jesus, do that omelet thing again, man, right? Like that's not, that's not the reason for this. He's revealing who he is. He's saying who he is, not just so that we can be astonished by it. That's not the point. See, he reveals that he's God and he says that he's God to get you to trust him enough to get in the wheelbarrow, to get you out of the boat. And this is why as we know God more, we trust God more. As, as our knowledge of God grows, our trust in God should grow as well. It's not just enough to know about him. The, again, the most important thing that God is doing in your life is teaching you to trust him. And he's gonna show you more and more about who he is to get you to lean further and further into who he is. Okay, verse 29, verse 29. We're almost there. So this is, remember Peter says, command me to come out to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. Beginning, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Okay, so, so Jesus, he says, come on. Peter, you wanna come out here? Come on, big boy, come on out to me, right? And I imagine Peter's like, oh yeah, here it is, right? I mean, I, it's not in the text, but I can just, that's how I read it, all right? Oh yeah, and then Peter gets out of the boat and he's gotta be like standing on the water, looking around being like, y'all, this is why I'm the rock, right? <laughs> and then he sees the waves and he starts sinking and they're like, uh, actually, bro, you are like a rock. You're sinking at this moment. Now, I just wanna point something out in this story that I think is really helpful. Peter, if you notice in the text, he doesn't start sinking and then begins to freak out. The order is important here. He doesn't start sinking and then get all jittery. No, he is walking on water. And then the text says he took his eyes off Jesus and he saw the wind and the waves and the water. And only then does he begin to sink. He only sinks after he takes his eyes off Jesus. He starts thinking about this perilous situation. You ever do that? You get somewhere and you're doing something and all of a sudden you like realize what you're doing. You're like, oh my gosh, this is dumb. That's what I think is happening here. He realizes the perilous situation he is in rather than focusing on the enabling power that got him there. 
And so he begins to sink. And I think it's our third trust God moment here. See, sometimes God will let you sink to get your eyes back on him. He'll send you into storms. He'll sometimes seemingly be absent as you fight through the night. And he'll also sometimes let you sink. But it's with the purpose of getting you to turn your eyes back to him. See, Peter in his distress sees the wind, sees the waves, sees that he's sinking, and he cries out the best and most honest prayer that anybody can pray in a storm. Lord, save me. There's okay times for just short, sweet prayers, y'all. Lord, save me. He gets his eyes back on Jesus. He, he must, he must turn to Jesus and say, Lord, save me. He sees Jesus. And so when you're in the water, when you're in the storm, when you feel yourself sinking, when you falter and you become afraid, you feel yourself sinking, put your eyes back on him. Again, the most important thing that God is doing in your life is teaching you to trust him. And this story is not giving us a, uh, uh, a character to emulate here. This isn't prescriptive, all right? It's not like, hey, you know what? You should just walk on water. If you trust Jesus, you can walk on water. Here's how I know this is not prescriptive. When Paul gets shipwrecked, he's not like, ah, don't worry about it. I've seen this happen in Matthew 14, right? And just like walking on. No, nobody else gets to do this. This is not prescriptive for us. This story doesn't give you an example to emulate. It gives you a savior who you can trust. Verse 31. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took a hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? See, see, Peter is sinking and he cries out, Lord, save me. And the text says that immediately, that's the second time immediately has been used in this passage. This, the, immediately Jesus takes his hand and it says he took a hold of him. I don't know what that means. Maybe wrapped him up in a hug or something, but he grabs a hold of Peter. And then he says, oh, you of little faith. Now this is where people rag on Peter. They think this is harsh from Jesus, but don't read this as a rebuke. Oh, you of little faith. Actually, when Jesus says that in the Greek, the you isn't there. We put that in there because it makes more sense in our English, but accurately in the Greek, it says, oh, little faith, why did you doubt? Oh, little faith. I think it's more like a father to a child. Oh, little faith, like almost like a pet name in some ways. Don't read it as an abuke. Read it as an encouragement here. Read it like this. You almost had it. You, you trusted Peter, you were doing it. You were walking on water. Oh, little faith, why did you doubt? You see, Peter is growing in his trust of Jesus. And it wanes a little bit. Like he has the enthusiasm, but he lacks the extent. He has all the passion, but he is lacking in the perseverance. Right, he has all the drive, but he lacks the duration. You want me to keep going? I got some, some other letters I can pull out, right? You see, I think the point here is that initial trust is not enough. 
Like we need, we need to have that first boost of trust that gets us out of the boat, but then we need sustaining trust. We need growing trust. We need to keep growing up in our trust. I mean, I keep coming back to it, but the most important thing God is doing to each one of us in every single one of our lives is teaching us to trust him more. We're seeing Jesus do this with the disciples, but we're seeing Peter grow before our eyes. Now, let's finish the text and I'll apply it. Verse 32. And when Peter and Jesus got into the boat, the wind ceased and those in the boat worshiped him saying, truly, you are the son of God. Now there's a lot of miracles. This is not one miracle. There's a lot of miracles happening in this story, at least four to my count. Like the fact that Jesus could find the disciples through a storm on the sea after six hours of being apart is a miracle. No GPS, all right? That's a miracle. Uh, Jesus actually walking on the sea is a miracle. Peter walking on the water is a miracle. And now Jesus and Peter get back in the boat and the winds cease again. I mean, these are miracles. He stills the storm again, which we've seen, but it's incredible. I mean, this is incredible stuff, but I just wanna notice how the disciples' response to Jesus, this time he stills the storm, is different than their response last time. Remember last time when they witnessed him stilling the storm, their response was, what sort of man is this? What sort of, what sort of man is this that even the wind and the waves, the seas obey him? But this time, the text says they worship him and they say, truly, you are the son of God. What sort of man is this? Son of God. See, they're trusting God more as they're knowing him more. And this is the final know God moment in our text. Uh, I, he was gonna reveal it. I think Jesus was gonna reveal it by passing them by. He, he says it. He says that he's God. Ego, I'm me, all right? And now the disciples declare that he's God. They declare it. Truly, this is the son of God. Now, interestingly, uh, this is the first time in Matthew's gospel that any of the disciples have called Jesus the son of God. It's the first time it's happened. There are some other characters who have called him the son of God, but they're all demons. Read into that however you want, okay? <laughs> the demons knew who he was and Jesus was like, just shut up. Seriously, that's, you won't find that exactly in, in the text, but that's what they said. This is before Peter's moment in Matthew 16 where he declares him as the Christ, the son of the living God. This is the first time we've seen anybody in his crew say, you're the son of God. See, they're growing. They're growing in their knowledge of God. They're growing in their trust. So yeah, this is a passage about Peter uh, walking on water. And there's plenty of really helpful and good application points uh, in this text that we could draw out, right? So maybe God has you in a storm right now. I wanna play it light. Like maybe God has you in a storm right now. And you're like, I obeyed you. I obeyed you and I ended up here. Maybe God is delaying at coming to your rescue, it would seem. He hasn't come immediately. And it feels like it's been hours of you fighting the sea. Maybe God is even letting you sink a little bit, right? Against the wind and the waves and the water, you took your eyes off of him and 
and he's letting you start to feel it a bit so that he can get your attention back where it needs to be. See, all of those are are adequate and accurate application points to this text, but I just wanna say with confidence that whatever is going on in your life, he's doing that to teach you to trust him. The most important thing God is doing in your life is teaching you to trust him. And if he is who he says he is, if he's God, he revealed it, he said it, they even declare it, but if he is God, then we can trust him. As we know God more, we trust God more. So I want to end with this illustration. I know uh, this is a Chandler, Matt Chandler illustration. Uh, I've used it before. I love this one. I'm going to end with this. Uh, when you have your first kid, when you have your first child, uh, you're just waiting and anticipating when they're going to start walking, like when they're going to take their first steps, right? That's just a big deal for families. I don't know what it is, but parents, uh, parents like to try and measure themselves up against other parents on how gifted their kid is or how good of parents they are based on how early their child walks, I don't know why it's like a, you know, a mark or something like that, but it's like, oh, she didn't walk until 18 months. Oh, better start saving for community college, right? (laughs) You're like, my little guy, he started walking at seven months, right? Which, by the way, is creepy. That's like a little Chucky doll, all right? That's terrifying, okay? But but for us, when Harper started to walk, um, which was at 11 months, so I don't know what that means, but... um, but here's how it would happen. This probably happened with your child if you have one, but she would crawl to the couch. She was all good at crawling and then she would pull herself up onto the couch. And then once she was up on the couch, she would do this like shuffle move across to the end of the couch. And then as she got more daring, she would remove one hand and we called it the wobbly cowboy, okay? Because she would just be like wobbling there and, and doing that. And what would happen was I would be a few steps then away from the couch on my knees and I would be saying, hey, come to daddy, right? Walk to that, come to me, come to me, girl. Now, um, I don't know if you know this, but babies are disproportionate creatures, <laughs> all right? Uh, their shapes and sizes are just all off. They're very abnormal. Okay. They, uh, they, they have big old heads and tiny bodies. Most of them, right? It's like a cantaloupe on a, on a Q-tip or something. It's just, it does not look good. So, so what happens is Harper lets go of the couch. She does wobbly cowboy and then she lets go and is ready to start walking to me. And she goes step, step, step. And then she crashes her big melon into the floor, right? That's what happens. She just goes crashing into the ground and gravity wins. And you know what Marcy and I did the first time she did that? We lost our minds. I mean, we just, we were like, oh my gosh, she's walking at 11 months. Start saving for Harvard, right? Like, like we freaked out. We freaked out like she split the atom or something. I mean, it was insanity. So there's this like moment of monumental celebration over the fact that your kid took three or four steps and then fell on their face, right? Now, here's the thing. I, I've never seen a parent respond to step, 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 fall with this. You call that walking? Are you serious? That's not walking. You failed at beating gravity, right? What's wrong with this kid? For, 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 for a bacon bit, I can get the dog to do that. What's wrong? This must be in your gene pool, right? Must be in your gene pool because my people walk. We walk in the Martin household, okay? 
never happens like that. It never happens like that. No, there's always this moment of just rejoicing, this explosion, this joy that just takes over the parents because their kid took some steps. And see, I think sometimes we think that God is like a rotten parent who, who sees our falls, who sees us sinking and, and thinks, when is this kid going to learn how to walk? How long is it going to take? Why do you keep falling down? And I think we've got that narrative pretty well hardwired into our brains. But see, never once as a father to my daughter, when she was learning to walk, did I watch her go step, 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 crash, and go, only three? Not going to get very far in life with that girl. That's pathetic. I never did that. Why would I think that my heavenly father would be any less compassionate than I am? No, when she fell, I went crazy. When she fell, I would scream and I would laugh and I would celebrate her. Why? Because my little girl was walking. And then I picked her up and I brushed her off and I cleaned her. I gave her a kiss and I set her on her feet. And I was like, all right, here we go. Let's do four. Let's do five. Why was I celebrating? Because my baby was walking. Come on, let's do four this time. Let's do five. Oh, little faith, you were walking on water. You were doing it. Don't let the false stagger you at this point. Listen, um, this is my last sermon for a while, and, and I just wanted to leave you with this, with this passage. I'm so thankful I got this passage, but let me leave you with this. Do you know him? Do you know Jesus like this? Do you know him? And by the way, have you trusted him? Because of who he says he is and who he demonstrates he is and who they declared him to be, have you swung your leg out over the edge of the boat and started trusting him? I'd just like to end with this. Um, I want us to invite God into whatever and wherever we might be at today. See, because maybe you're here today and, and you feel like you've just been freshly filled with God's spirit. You feel like you're kind of walking on water proverbially right now. And, and if you're in that position, man, I just want you, to, I want you to thank him for it. I want you to praise him for it. I want you to say, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for calling me out onto the water but I'd be remiss to say that maybe you're not there. Maybe you're in a storm and you feel like you've been rowing all night and you're exhausted and you're just wondering where he's at. Like, where are you? I was just feeding people with you. Where have you gone? And I'm just saying, he's trying to teach you to trust him. He's trying to teach you to trust him. Would you, would you invite God into that? Why don't you invite him into that storm, into that boat with you? You just say, God, I need you in, and then fill in the blank. God, I need your help here. They cry out in terror. They need him to save them. Or then maybe you've just never known this. Like maybe you've never really trusted him before in your life. You've never actually gotten out 
of the boat. You never actually put your weight in the wheelbarrow. But for whatever reason, man, the Lord is just tugging at you, whispering to you, calling at your heart, and, and you don't know what it's gonna look like, and you don't know if you fully trust him yet, and you're not sure if he's gonna get midway across that tightrope, and then the wobbles are gonna happen, and what happens at that point? But you just feel maybe like today, Jesus is becoming more real to you. You're knowing him more. You're seeing him and you wanna get out. You wanna walk to him. Come on. Come on, big boy. Let's go. Let's get out of the boat. See, Peter's words are for you to pray. Lord, it's, if it's you, command me to come to you. Command me to walk to you on the water. You pray Peter's prayer. Lord, save me. Save me. If it's you, command me to come and save me. And I just, I just know this about our God. He's saying, come on. Let's go. Come to me. Trust me. Let's walk on water. Let's pray together. Father, what a great passage of scripture. I, I can see why it's a big deal. I can see why it's famous. I can see why this is one of those well-known passages. And yet, Lord, it seems like you're doing so much in it. All through the text, Jesus, if we're misreading this, then correct us, but it seems like you're trying to show and say and declare who you really are, that you're the son of God. Ego I mean, it is I, I am. And in the same moment, in the same story, Lord, that, that as we know you more, we see you challenging us to trust you more. In our storms, in our fights, in our moments of sinking, you, you call us to trust you, that if you are trust, you, that you are trustworthy if you are who you say you are. So God, for my brothers and sisters in this place, I, I pray that we would see you for who you are, that we would know you more today. And that would cause us to go deeper in our trust of you. Lord, if there are some who have never known you, who have never put their trust in you, Father, I pray through the power of your Holy Spirit right now that they would be bowing the knee to you, that their prayer would be, Lord, save me. And as the Apostle Paul says, they would be ushered out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of your beloved son. I pray that's happening even right now. Even for our friends online, I pray that's happening. So God, we love you. We worship you as the, as the Lord of all creation and the Father who calls us to come. We pray these things, Father, in your son's name and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.